Acts 17, if you would, tonight, as we continue our journey through Acts. Let me encourage you, I, I don't know, I'm sure it's a blessing to others too, but when you come uh, with some testimonies like we had tonight, that is a, just a tremendous blessing for me to hear different testimonies of what the Lord's doing. So as you go throughout your week and something good happens like that, mark it down in your mind and share it on Sunday evening. I think it's a blessing, uh, a great part of our services uh, to share that with one another. Acts chapter 17. We come now to Paul's arrival in Athens. Uh, despite the rise of Rome, Athens was still the intellectual capital of the world. Athens was like all of the Ivy League schools and Oxford and Cambridge all rolled into one. Uh, if you, that, that's the type of place this Athens was. Paul's address to the, philosoph to the philosophers on Areopagus. Uh, I'm going to fight with that word all night, but Areopagus on Mars Hill, has been studied at length. You can read much about this passage. And it's a great passage to analyze. Paul's argument was extremely well executed. It is a study in how to talk to different types of people. And tonight we're going to look at the gospel to the philosophers. You have to understand Greek rhetoric, and it would take a long time and I think be a fruitless exercise for us to get into all that, uh, the background that they had. But I, what I want to do tonight is just make some general observations. I want to focus on three areas that we can learn from this text, the problems of culture, the greatness of God, and the outrageousness of the resurrection. Look at verse number 16 in chapter 17. <clears throat> now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some he, seem, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Arachibus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now, think about that verse is a lot like it is today, isn't it? People are always looking to hear or to tell some new thing. I think this might be where Facebook was invented here, verse number 21. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. That was absolute genius. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight in these few minutes we have to do justice to this passage. Help us to see from it what you would. In Jesus' name, amen. At the start, we see in verse 17 here, he disputed in the synagogues with the Jews. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul here, and some of them asked the question, what will this babbler say? 
Now, what's interesting in this passage, and what I love about Paul, Paul sees the gospel not just as some private or personal peace and help. He sees the gospel as something for everyone. He takes the gospel to the public square. When it says here he went to the market, we may think of shopping. It's not uh, the marketplace like we would think today a marketplace, but the word, original words, agora. <coughs> it's any assembly for public debating. Where, where would you get the news of the day? They didn't have newspapers. Uh, books were rare. You went to the marketplace to get the news. This is where the news was announced. This is where the heralds cried out their messages. This was the media center. It also applied to the financial world. Businessmen and investors would meet one another and discuss their deals in the Agora. Where do you think political speeches were made and ideas debated? It happened in the Agora, in the marketplace. Now, Athens and Rome could have been called the two cultural centers of the world at that time, and the way that people thought and lived, it all kind of came through this place here. These were the cultural elites. These were the people that everyone had wanted to be like. But Paul was not intimidated. He jumped in with both feet. Notice it says he disputed in the marketplace. The Greek word is dialogemai uh, for the word disputed. And, of course, you can almost hear our English word in it, dialogue, uh, to discuss. But our understanding of the word dialogue might be a little too generic for what he was doing because what, he, what we're talking about here. We could, uh, it's called Socratic reasoning. And Socratic reasoning wasn't just preaching or debate or political talking points. He did not jump on a soapbox and just start to spout out his opinion. Socratic reasoning means that you ask questions. You listen to the other person's argument, and then you try to show them, if you disagree, you try to show them how they're wrong on the basis of their own ideas. Paul does a masterful uh, does this masterfully in this passage. It's not like a political debate where you see two people just basically going through all their talking points and, and trying to outdo each other that way. What we're talking about here is really asking questions, really listening and getting another person's view, point of view. This is where Paul goes. Now, I think this raises two different issues that I'd like to just touch on where, uh, that, that apply to us today. And I put myself in this... Uh, this uh, category here, we're often not comfortable talking with people we disagree with. If I know somebody is of a different, different political bent than I am, I don't like to get into a political conversation with them. I just don't really enjoy talking to people I disagree with. Probably that is often because we feel ill-equipped, uh, we don't feel we know enough, and so we avoid run-ins with any of those that might challenge us. And that really is not good when it comes to the gospel. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, we are to always be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you of the reason, uh, the reason of the hope that is in you. The second thing that maybe we mistakenly uh, think is that the gospel is sufficient, or we think that it is not. Paul felt that the gospel was sufficient. Paul goes to the center of the center of the culture. He gets and he starts to give out the gospel. Now he believes that the gospel has what it takes to challenge the most dominant ideas of the day. The gospel has what it takes to engage these cultural elites. These were these were the the Harvard of the day. I mean, these are the top of the top of the 
creme de la creme of society. And he had no doubt about it. He had no hesitation. He just plunges right in. Now, when it comes to us, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I think that we can just have that thought in the back of our mind. I don't say I consciously think it, but sometimes we automatically think when we see an educated, successful person, man, woman, whoever it may be, that they don't really need the gospel. Because, I mean, look at them. They've got everything. And now, that's a human type of thinking. I know that intellectually I don't think that way, but sometimes that's our automatic response. And we need to be willing to engage anyone, because everyone without Christ needs Christ. Whether they be a Harvard professor or whether they be a bum on skid row, if they don't have Christ, they need Christ equally, and we ought to be willing to go talk to them. Another observation here, because we're looking back, is a little bit of an irony of what happens here. Paul is mocked at first because they don't respect what he's saying. In fact, they ask the question here, uh, they they ask the question, what will this babbler say? Now, it's an interesting word that they use when they use the word babbler. The original word literally means a bird picking up seeds. That's what babbler means. Not not the babbler, but the word that's translated to babbler. Uh, I don't know what the word is because it, it, that sounds like a babble when I say it, so I'll skip over it. But uh, the original word means a bird picking up seeds. It's an idiom for a person with no original ideas. So what it basically is, it's an insult that someone is just taking the recycled ideas of somebody else and putting them forth on his, as his own. And so this is how they are demeaning Paul. It's how they're making fun of him. Now, the irony is that within the next 250 years, Christianity saturated this society here. It completely changed the dominant cultural thinking in that area. People may have been laughing at Paul at this point, but within 200 years, what Paul's saying is not a joke anymore. Now, how did that happen? It's a great study to look at how Christianity came into different areas, uh, but it's simply because culture has many weaknesses. No matter what time you are talking about, ancient times, middle ages, current times, no matter what time you pick, people have problems, people have issues, people have hopes. And society often tries to answer those, but it always fails. Just look around even today. We have more than perhaps any society or culture has ever had in the history of mankind. We have We have wealth, even the poorest in America are wealthier than many of the wealthy in other countries. We have so much. Read People magazine. Well, don't read People magazine, but if you were to read People magazine, you would see that, uh, just to see if you can get the answer to life's questions in there, you couldn't. You wouldn't find any lasting satisfaction. Then Christianity came along, and it started to answer those questions that dealt with those problems. Christianity, then and now, has the answers that culture and society does not have. We need to remember that, no matter what level of society folks are found in. And so, let me break down the two that are mentioned here. It talks about the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Stoics were basically moralists. The Epicureans were relativists. The Stoics believed in moral absolutes. They believed that The meaning of life was to be noble and courageous. They had the view that the meaning of life was not to let life get to you. In fact, 
One of the meanings of the word stoic is apathetic. This is the type of people that they were. When suffering came, you needed to detach your heart and emotions. You needed to harden yourself. You didn't cry. You didn't show emotion. You didn't grieve because the meaning of life uh, included in it to be a strong person. Now, that didn't work for most people. No surprise. That's not how we're made. And so that, that type of living or thinking did not answer people's basic needs of their heart. Then you look at the Epicureans. Uh, by the way, Christianity came along, and it preached things like hope, everlasting life, resurrection, and it started to t preach and teach those things. And when you have somebody like the Stoics, it can't, it can't measure up to what Christianity has to offer. Uh, the Epicureans believed that when you died, that was it. They, uh, there might be some gods, but if so, they're so remote, they have nothing to do with us. So they, this was their meaning encapsulated. The meaning of life is not to be good. It's not to be, it, it is to be happy. It is to live your life the way that you want. You need to be free. Live for pleasure. This life is all you have, so live for pleasure. Does that sound familiar to anybody today? That's our world in a nutshell today. It doesn't take long for people to realize that's not the answer either. That leaves you empty because the fleeting satisfaction that you find in pleasure is just that. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. And uh, so in Christ, people found real fulfillment. And I'm simply saying, just like then and now, the world does not have the answer to what uh, is longing in our hearts. Christianity does. So here Paul is encountering the philosophers. The Stoics believed there were moral absolutes. In fact, they called the moral absolutes the logos. The word logos actually means reason. It's where we get our word logic. The Stoics believed that these moral absolutes could be discovered and found if a good philosopher, uh, as they discussed these things, they would discern what was true. You'd have the, you have to discern right and wrong. You have to discern the meaning of things, and you did that through deliberation, through philosophy. Still have people that think that today. Christianity came along, and here Paul is preaching, yes, there is meaning to life. There is logos. There is a structure behind the universe, but it's a person. The logos is Jesus. That's what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you want to know the meaning of life, it's not to contemplate philosophy, but to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe and through Jesus Christ. That's the message that Paul was giving. Now, this changed everything uh, because this is not what they were used to hearing. This is why they, you see him come to him. You're teaching these strange things. We want to hear, and they ask more about it there in uh, verse number 20. Now, the Stoics believed in moral absolutes, but they were cold. And uh, that did not attract the people. The Epicureans said, live any way you want, but that's empty and ending up very lonely, as you see even in today's society too. Christ was the answer to what was missing. Christ still is the answer to what's missing in the culture we have today. So secondly then, the greatness of God. When you look at the actual speech Paul makes to the Areopagus there, uh, that, by the way, this was the council of leading philosophers, the biggest influences, the elites of the elite. He goes up there and begins to speak. Now, again, <clears throat> we could take weeks to analyze this. When I started to look at material that was available on this chapter, it's, it's volumes and volumes of it. You can read a lot. Lots of books have been written about 
what Paul did here. But I want to just take a look at the heart of what he's saying here. He's telling them about a God, the God, different than they had ever known. He is giving them a great God. He's giving them a real God. Now, the gods of that culture were temperamental. We still have stories of the Greek and Roman gods. I've never actually got into that type of thing, Greek mythology and the different gods. I've heard snippets here and there, but I've never studied it. Uh, but they were angry. They were egocentric. They, they got their feelings hurt. They're always feuding with one another. Uh, the reason for that is that their gods were just us with more power, was really what it was. They just gave uh, human attributes with more power. And so when it came to worshiping these gods, it looked more like appeasement. For example, you had to appease the god of the ocean, Poseidon, if you were going to take a voyage. You certainly did not adore these gods. You didn't have a relationship with them. You didn't worship them with any admiration. You appeased them. That, by the way, is most gods that are made up by man, whether it's uh, remote tribes or even organized religions that... That God is someone that uh, has to be appeased. Paul comes and he talks about God. And the way that he approaches this, I think, is just genius. He really comes to them. Look at what he says in verse 22. <clears throat> then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Uh, he found an altar here in verse, 22, or verse 23 to the unknown God. And what Paul is essentially saying, I think you know that there's a God above all these other gods you have. I think you're aware of that. He found this altar to an unknown God. That's curious, to build an altar to an unknown God. I mean, if I'm going to worship the sun, make an altar to the sun. But the, now, this is possible some polytheist was just trying to cover all his bases. Just in case I missed one, there's an altar to you. But Paul jumped on this as a sign of the fact, you know there's a God there that you don't know. That's how he approached it. Uh, he says, you actually sense a God there, and yet you're unable to identify him. And I am going to reveal him to you. Then he starts to describe him. I think that's genius. He's taking what they already have. They already have a tomb, or uh, I mean a, a, uh, an altar, that they built to the unknown God. He's not making anything up. He's telling them what they've already done, and he's using their own beliefs against them. It goes a little further here. But, but listen first how he describes him. This God is so much bigger than any other gods. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein. Secondly, he not only has created everything, but he's dependent on nothing. He's self-sufficient. Verse 25, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He is beginningless. He's endless. And then thirdly, he's sovereign over everything. He's not only made all of the nations, he's marked out their appointed times in history. He's determined their boundaries. It means everything that happens in history is under his control. This God is bigger than any God they've ever heard of. Any God. He's created everything. He's dependent on nothing. He's sovereign over everything. So in a sense, this God is higher than any God they've ever seen. Then he says in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. 
In other words, this is a bigger God, a higher God, a more superior God than you've ever heard of, but he's also more intimate. He wants your fellowship. He wants a relationship with you. And notice how Paul's going about this. He's going about it from the, the, the point you actually know that this God exists. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. What he's actually doing here is, I'm going to prove you already know that God exists. You see the clues of it in your own writing, your own thinking. I love how Paul goes about this. He's using their own philosophy kind of against them, in a way. There's an article years ago in the Chronicles of Higher Education. A woman was studying different cultures in Africa. And one of the things that really bothered her was the way the women were treated in their culture. They treated women terribly. And she spoke to someone about this, and this is what he says. Don't impose your white Western values on us. Now, this bothered her on an intellectual basis. She said this in her article, and I quote, I don't believe in God, so I realize that technically they're right. I have my beliefs about what is right and wrong. That culture has their beliefs. How dare I say that my culture is right and theirs is not? See, if you don't believe in God, you can account for moral feelings. Your society have, may have learned that loving people is better than hating people. You can account for moral feelings, but you cannot account for moral obligation. In other words, if you feel another culture is treating women wrong, but that culture doesn't feel that they're treating women wrong, then how dare you say your feelings ought to take precedence over theirs? This creates a paradox, and it's difficult for secularists to explain this without God in the picture. And that's exactly what I believe Paul is doing here. Paul is saying, you know there's a God there. You know there's a real God. Your own people have written about it. Your own poets have written about it. And, if, and our, our hearts, really, I think everybody's hearts want to believe in a God. Else there wouldn't be so many gods in in primitive cultures where you have a, <coughs> they've found uh, uh, tribes that have never been touched by an outside hand and they all have gods. They all worship something. We all want to worship something. And so when we believe, in, if we believe in any type of moral absolutes, it does demand a God. Now, look at the outrageousness of the resurrection. And it's interesting here. Paul never really finishes. He doesn't really even get into Jesus, in detail like he normally does, he's interrupted, and the reason is because he mentions the resurrection. Look at verse number 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, the Bible says some mocked, others wanted to hear more about it later, and at that point Paul left the council. But I want you to notice something here that Paul calls the resurrection proof. See that when he talks about it being assurance? How do we know that this above and beyond God exists, that he was preaching to them? The proof is the resurrection. He does not say, look at the grass that grows green in the spring. He does not say, look at the stars in the sky. He points to the resurrection. Because the resurrection is completely contrary to how the world works. Because in this world, things die. 
In this world, things decay. Death is death. But it wasn't death on that day, not on the resurrection. And these people were fine having a conversation on their terms. You know how these discussions go. When they philosophize, people get together and talk about things. That works for me, but this doesn't work for me. I don't like that. I do like this. But a claim that a man was raised from the dead as proof that God exists and the gospel is true. You see, if that's true, then Christianity must be embraced as being true whether you like it or not. And you have to put away with all your false beliefs. And of course, people then found that outrageous. People today find that outrageous. But you can't go through the Bible, pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. Uh, you know Thomas Jefferson did that? They, they call it the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can still read it online. He did it with a razor blade knife. He cut out, he didn't believe in miracles. He believed in what the Bible taught when it talked with Sermon on the Mount, how to treat people and treat your enemies and all that. He, he bought into that, but he didn't believe in miracles. He fancied himself a scientist. He was. And he did not believe in the miraculous, so he cut out certain parts of the Bible that didn't fit with him. You can't do that. You can't cut out what you don't like, all right? We've got to take it as it is. If it's the Word of God, it's the Word of God. And we have to take things as they are. By the way, the resurrection has a claim on your life. If you're a Christian, the resurrection means there's nothing to do, really, in our life but to live for Him. And it has that claim and this is what really cut it off when he started talking about the resurrection. I, I find it interesting, though, going back to Paul uh, talking to them, because it's one of the things that amazes me in this passage is just how dedicated Paul was to get the gospel to anyone and everyone. Did you notice in verse 16 how Paul got upset when he saw the idolatry? Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He's upset with the idols that he sees there. But the great thing about Paul, and this is what lesson we've got to take home, he doesn't get disgusted and split town. He gives them the truth. He preaches the gospel to them. He plunges on, even though he knows he's going to be mocked, he's going to be rejected, even though it must have been painful. But it's nothing like his and our Savior had went through. Jesus, in the same way, looked down from heaven saw our idolatry, but did not abandon us, but plunged on and came and paid the price for our sins. He too came to a world where he was mocked, he was rejected, he was arrested, he was blindfolded, he was beaten, he was crucified. Jesus Christ did all this and then rose again. And Paul, that resurrection makes all the difference, which is what Paul ended with here, it makes all the difference for us as well. We have to take the gospel as Paul took the gospel to our culture the way he took it to his. <clears throat> One of the things I love about this chapter is that uh, it's easy for us sometimes to take the gospel to the homeless shelter, take the gospel to the jails, and those are necessary, by the way. When it comes to the elites of society, we can get intimidated a little bit. Paul didn't because he recognized Anybody who doesn't have Christ needs Christ. Doesn't matter how much they have in their bank account. Doesn't matter what kind of car they drive. Doesn't matter what kind of house they live in. If you don't have Christ, that's your biggest need. You need Christ. And so he preached Christ to them. And I love the way he did it. 
it's, a, it's a study in how to go about. That's why the Bible says, he that win a souls is wise. I think we do this long enough, we like Paul can learn how to approach different people, different classes and all that. So let that be a challenge to us this week. Let's be faithful in giving that gospel. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the time we've had. I pray that you would bless our efforts throughout the rest of these, this coming week. And may we make an impact for you in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.